Welcome to Saga Craft. Myths, fairy tales, legends, stories comfort us, inspire us, and heal us. Please join us as we share stories, both old and new. More than anything, we are open to the story and its unfolding. At times, it may be one story told by one person. At times, it's the same story told through three different voices. In the end, we go where the story takes us, and we invite you to follow. I'm C, a writer, artist, and storyteller. I'm Betsy, a medium and teacher of mystery traditions. I'm Gabriella, an artist and practitioner of folk magic. We, we are, are magical, magical fairy godmothers, godmothers in, in training. training. Today, we will be sharing stories about the wild hunt and all the magic and wildness and blessing that comes with those times and the adventures. The fires first lit for grandfather's feasts are still burning. They burn for a long time in these parts, not just for the one eve and into morning, but for the many nights that follow after. The days are short and nights long and getting longer yet heading into the deepest autumn. The autumn that strips the trees bare and freezes the ground solid and closed, preparing for winter. Many souls and spirits wander in this cold landscape and howling winds, finding their way home through the thin veils of the dark season, finding their way towards their loved ones who remember, honor, and feed them, nourish them through the opening of ways before their journey to the other world continues. Candles are set at the tables, illuminating the faces of gathered families, waiting for their ancestors to arrive in whatever form possible, illuminating their path home for the night. Fires are lit at the crossroads and fences, guiding even the forgotten, nameless souls without families for this night. Their path is clear. They have been found. Those fires that burn are not for me. They're not for me. They cannot warm the coldness deep within. They cannot light my way home. The tables are set with bread and milk, with porridge and honey. In gratitude, the tables are set to feed the memories of loved ones past, to give them strength in the other world. Those offerings and feasts are not for me. They're not for me. No feast can fill my hunger or quench my thirst. No honey can sweeten the bitterness that burns me. Songs and prayers can be heard, messages revealed between the living and the dead, a sacred time. The living lean softly to hear the whispers and blessings of their loved ones. What omens, what wisdom do they bring for the coming year? The songs they sing are not for me, they're not for me, and no one wants to hear my cries my howls or my rage. I am the keeper of the place where the unwanted go, the banished, the wicked, and the wild. Here they come, and I contain them. Keep them still, keep them quiet and far away from the living and from the fires, until this time comes when the earth stirs and the winds whirl, and I can no longer keep from howling a thousand cries. And the cold wind blows from all sides. There's nowhere to run, no place to hide. This wind might find me after all. Take me over, push me further out. 
I will be free at last, free at last. But I will not go into the night. I have my rage. I have my thousand cries. I will not be banished. I must keep guard. Ah, here they come. Hundreds of riders and beasts and ghouls. By ground and by air they ride. So many faces, flared nostrils and fierce eyes. Tumbling and crying like one being. Onward and forward they ride. Unstoppable. Unconfined. Oh, how wonderful it would be to ride with them, to whirl and fly, to be free, to be undone. But I cannot. I cannot ride. I must remain. I must guard. I have my rage. I have my thousand cries. It is my duty, and I am bound. The black rider arrives. I meet his eyes. Your time has come, guardian. You must ride. But I cannot, for I am bound and I hold a thousand cries. Give me your cries, he demands. I give him one, and onward he rides. The red rider arrives, I meet his eyes. Your time has come, guardian, you must ride. I still cannot, for I am bound, and with the rage of a thousand I howl. Give me your rage, he demands. I give him one, and onward he rides. The white rider arrives. I dare not meet his eyes. He cannot see me. I must hide. But he can see all. And there's nowhere to go, no place to hide. And I still hold the thousand cries inside. I've come for you, guardian. Your time is now. Another rider comes to take your place, to keep the edge, to keep the banished and the wicked and the wild. I cannot leave. I cannot ride. I have a thousand howling voices inside, a thousand rages, and a thousand cries. Those are not yours. Those are now mine. I have come for them so you can ride. Your time has come, white rider. Go forth and ride. It is my turn to guard the land at this time. And so I ride. I take the thousand howls with me and the cries. I dissolve with the wind as do the cries and the rage and we howl with such vigor, such force and joy that nobody will be left behind. No one will wander, no one will be bound. Free at last, free at last. We are undone and we ride. I love that, that was so powerful. Thank you. It was fun to write. <laughs> I do too. I loved the what felt to me like dichotomous nature. The first the lack and then the the engagement or the belonging in a totally different way. Yes, nature was a big part of it. Nature and time and that everything belongs in the right order, even if it's part of disorder and chaos. And just the concept that some of these energies that people cast away and banish, where do they go? It's like they're kept in a place for a time and there are energies guarding that threshold. But when it's time to break that cycle and start anew, everybody has to go. And that just felt really uplifting in this way, at least. So is that a permanent gone, do you think? For those spirits and those souls, yes. Until the new ones start coming new elements that have been cast aside or sent off to that place far, far away, wherever that may be. Mm -hmm. 
I loved all the descriptions. I always love all your descriptions. They're very beautiful. Thank you. Tangible for me. I liked the dedication in it too. I mean, just the acceptance of what was and the adherence to some kind of code or some kind of an agreement and the necessity of having beings, people of some sort who will do those jobs, who will do that intense work. And a lovely, very vigorous portrayal of the hunt itself too. It's great. I also really like the release, not just of those who are fully gone, but the idea that parts of ourselves could be offered up and could be released with that as well. I love the uh, demonstration of how to let go and the reassurance that when we let go of something, it is in fact carried on and repurposed. And it makes me think too of what happens when people are dying that the things that they've been carrying often pass on to the living and to know that there's some recourse for those who've inherited these kinds of rages or emotions or feelings and to know that they too can move on and be taken at certain times of the year intense and uplifting thank you both for listening and having such beautiful things to say I'm quite fond of some of these words in here. I might even incorporate them into something else because I do feel like the words came from this code and from this, the place of longing and wanting to be released and also knowing that once they've come to the edge, they're the only ones holding it back and the trust that whatever's after can sustain it, can sustain the edge when they're the last one standing. And that was the reason why they were still standing. And I like that when this voice first started coming, they really were showing me the warm places and the acceptable places that people gather or create for their ancestors and how some are simply not welcome for very good reason because they're part of a landscape that upholds the bigger structure of it all. And there are forces wild and free that really understand those situations and those feelings and the illnesses and the things that must be kept at bay to contain a balance. So I appreciate how that voice came through with the warmth and with the wilderness of the cold. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now C has a story. Thank you. On All Hallows' Eve at midnight, their time, 7 p.m. mine, the sound of distant hooves echoes through the air with accompanying wind. A lost dog sniffs his way from tree to tree, smelling the stories of a million other dogs before him. The wind begins to howl, low and mournful at first, then whipping up into a high-pitched scream as the worst-for-wear group ascends. What does one call a group of corpses? A flock? Herd? Fleet? Bizarre? For practical purposes, they're done eating, so one would think that satisfied would be an appropriate term, yet they are anything but. I will call them the wanting. As soon as they land, they splinter off into subgroups, rounding the forest as if hurting its lack of occupants, filling the air with their howls and screams, the pounding of hooves, the whipping of reins. Their leader, a tall man in a taller hat, gestures in the air as if conducting the cacophony. He gallops between the foreboding trees at full speed, 
unafraid, wielding a spear wildly and with abandon. I doubt he remembers what it is or who he is. Then again, why would he need to? He's only playing his part. He is what we have made him, just as we are what he has made us. All memory is selective anyway. It's just about who gets to select. In the wee hours of the morning, they happen upon a man tucked into his thick-down sleeping bag and bivy sack. The tall man nods, and three of the wanting surround the camper and begin to chant. He goes on sleeping as a heavy rider with thin strands of long, thinning hair hoists the camper, still cuddled into his waterproof cocoon, over his shoulder before mounting his horse again. The two gallop chaotically into the night, though only one of them knows it. As they approach the waterfall, their leader makes what I can only describe as a sound that isn't so much heard as experienced. It rips through the worlds, creating a jagged tear in the fabric of understanding that self-heals behind them, leaving a slight energetic skin tag. It's equally as appealing. They arrive at the elven court and, after a few feigned niceties, present the snoring bundle to the king. He smiles, then gestures to them to dump it into the corner. The circular tables that line the hall are covered with food, steaming loaves of bread and cauldrons of soup, yams and soy chorizo, as well as those marginally burnt sausages that C.S. Lewis likes so much. There are dazzling crystal carafts of mead, ale, and wine, in addition to a stunning variety of elven alcohols in a rainbow of colors. All sit down to enjoy the meal. Enjoy being a word that is utterly misleading. Though they have no need of physical substance, the wanting suck down enormous quantities of food and drink so quickly I can't imagine they actually taste them, and with no sign of enjoyment whatsoever. They are not done eating, although their bodies no longer require that. When they finish what I can retrieve of serving spoons, they begin licking the platters in a desperate fever. The king taps on his crystal glass with the end of his fork to call attention as the final drops are squeezed from the carafes and the squattest of the wanting licks the final dollop of yam from the central cauldron. Tonight's entertainment, the king announces, gesturing to the unconscious lump of human in the corner. Three elves hoist him upright and pry him from his bivy sack with surprising grace. Two hold him upright, his head drooping forward and to the left. The third, a younger elf in exquisite dress, first fingerprints, then searches him, handing the driver's license to the king, who reads the name and address. John Dickinson, 428 East Pine. Aloud. Moments later, the younger elf hands the king two iPads, one displaying a personal file and one showing a social media page. The king snorts, his mouth settling on a half-smile. Good job, folks, he comments. It looks like this one's told his fiance he's spending time alone in the woods and called him sick at work. Sound erupts in the room as the elves snicker and the wanting does a full round of high fives. Everyone in hand pulls out a camera except for the younger elf who momentarily hugs the camper, then slowly shapeshifts into his form, like wax melting and solidifying again. At the wave of the king's hand, a disco ball descends from the ceiling and music floods the room. The doppelganger leads a Congo line as the other snap pictures. Next, he does a strip tease, draping the man's plaid flannel over his sprightly feminine elf, then licking her cheek. Others shift into animal form and pose lewdly as often as not, 
while still more guests document with images. The party rages for hours until daylight threatens to shatter the night and the Elven King rings his glass once again. The group slowly quiets. Another successful evening, he announces. Tomorrow, the tall leader of the Wanting suggests, you bring the entertainment, we'll provide the food, the Elven King announces as the Wanting head off to return the camper to the woods while his younger elf friend uploads all the images to his social media account. <laughs> That's amazing. What a story you painted with your words. Thank you. <laughs> I love the feast. I really felt like I was there with all of your descriptions of it and the food and the mead. And I love how mischievous everybody is and, and so funny. And there's that element of not feeling quite safe ever, which I think is an important part of these kinds of adventures and really this time, this time of the year and being with these magical beings, even if they blend in somehow into present time. There's that element of the uncanny and the unknown and that anything could happen and we could be snatched away at any moment right. and forever changed. Mm -hmm. And I think we've lost so much lore about it that people perhaps at this time of year really put themselves at risk as well, which might not have happened in previous times where people were aware of what the potential dangers might be. And I like the collaboration between the different kinds of beings as well, <laughs> and sort of the routine that they've worked out together. And the worldly networking. <laughs> <laughs> and staying on top of what's happening in the mortal world as well as incorporating it to their own delight. What was it like to spend time with this story? I actually very much enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed all of them. I guess to me, it rings very true that sometimes the world can be a combination of sort of not malicious, but not safe either. That area of gray where you're like, well, that's not ideal. And it is kind of entertaining. But, uh, <laughs> you know, what do you do with that? Yeah. Right. Watch your back, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Did you have a favorite? I know you loved all of the people in it. Did you feel especially close to one or another? The two leaders. Yeah, the two leaders. Well, and I guess the camper. I really felt for the camper. It's true. I was quite fond of them as well. <laughs> <laughs> it was delightful. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you. And next. Tess worried that Hildur, the goblin cat, was not having an easy time with her newly transmogrified shape. Gone were her extra long legs, now shortened by several inches. She had five toes on each paw rather than seven, and she no longer had the head-to-tail thick line of extra stiff fur along her spine. She didn't look completely normal, but a lot of cats have that distinction. She seemed to be in a little bit of shock after the change, which great Aunt Hulda said was entirely natural. If you've known yourself one way and now you aren't that anymore, that's what it would feel like. Her great aunt had taken her by the hand when she'd finished with her work and said, it will take Hilda a little time to get used to this, 
She may be a little clumsy. Whatever she does, don't laugh. Tess promised her solemnly that she wouldn't laugh, but it turned out to be harder than she thought because Hilda couldn't judge distances in her new configuration, lurching and tumbling around, which hurt her dignity more than her body. Over a little time, Hildur, the cat, regained her poise and her confidence. Tessa's mother agreed. Tessa's familiar looked as much like a normal cat as possible under the circumstances of coming from the goblin world and now seemed in control of her body. One fine day, it was decided that Tess and Hildur could go outside together. On a day that was cold and clear, Tess took Hildur outside for the first time. She shot through the open door and took a great leap into the pile of leaves in the front yard. Tess followed and jumped into the leaves herself, twirling happily in the rustling red leaves, feeling delight and awakening tendrils of power. She twirled first sunwise and then Wittershins. As she did, tensions she hadn't even been aware of reeled off of her and she felt pure happiness. Hildur seemed to be in a similar mood as she leapt and gambled and generally acted like a kitten. Tess was glad she could play. She thought Hildur had been trying awfully hard to be good. And while it came naturally to Tess, it seemed to take a real effort for Hildur. Tess's mother, busy in the kitchen, checked on them from time to time and seemed to be satisfied by what she saw for she left them to it. A little wind had sprung up and moved through the last of the hanging leaves on the nearest tree. A fall of autumn-colored leaves snowed down on them. The little wind riffled through the pile of leaves, lifting some and flattening others. A small twister of dry leaves formed and spiraled high. Hildur pounced on the jewel-red spiral of leaves, which lifted up off the ground above her, frustrating her intent. The twister formed again, dancing closer to the cat and then pulling away. The cat slunk down and stalked it, her eyes gleaming intently. The wind twisted out of reach, just as Hilder pounced again and missed. Tail twitching, Hilder became even more focused, and as the wind teasingly approached, Hilder pounced to the left of it, neatly landing on it, no, in it, as the wind twisted that direction. Tess saw Hildur's mouth stretch wide, wider than it should be able to, and then Hildur growled and grabbed the wind with her teeth. The wind struggled furiously, but Hildur's grip on it was strong. With a big gulp, she swallowed it whole. The spiraling swirl of red leaves suspended in the air dropped abruptly to the ground. Hildur dropped to her belly. The wind continued to struggle inside of her. Hilda kept her teeth together, hissing and arching as the wind tried to fling her from side to side. Oh no, Tess cried. What have you done? Tess ran to her aid as Hilda scooted along the ground, moving forward and hunching up every few feet. Grabbing the cat, who thrashed furiously, Tess entreated her, let go of it. Hilda refused to open her mouth, wide-eyed but determined to keep it in. Running with the struggling cat to the front door of her home, she opened it, calling, Mother, we need your help. I'm in the kitchen. What is it? Tess ran into the big kitchen where her mother was busy with her recipes. Hildur leapt out of her arms and hit the floor, hunching over like a cat with a fur ball, but refusing to cough or open her mouth at all. She rocked from side to side as the furious wind tried to force its way out of her. 
When it bashed her into a chair leg at the kitchen table, a little bit of the wind escaped, blowing her mother's piled papers off the table in a small gust. What on earth is it? Her mother asked, watching intently. She swallowed a wind and she won't let it go. What can we do? Oh, Hildur, her mother said, kneeling by the lurching cat. Her mother was struggling with laughter and vexation. She put her hands on either side of Hildur's back, trying to feel what was happening inside the cat. As she moved her hands from her back towards her belly, the cat hissed as well as she could through her teeth. It was both a warning hiss and a help me kind of hiss. The wind, which had been rocking Hildur side to side, immediately pressed for advantage, changed direction and pummeling her internally from head to tail and back. Surprising Hildur, who squeaked a little, wind erupted from her mouth, smelling of leaves on the far north, and from her rear end, releasing a fart only a distressed goblin cat could make. Oh my gosh, that's terrible, said her mother, as Hildur catapulted out of her arms, leaving her in a noxious cloud. Tess tried not to giggle. Call Auntie Hulda, she'll know what to do, Tess's mother said, waving her arms. Tess called her, praying she would be there to answer. Hulda didn't bother saying hello when she picked up, merely saying, what did she do? Oh, Auntie, she swallowed a wind. Surprised silence and then cackling laughter. Auntie, you told me not to laugh at her. I didn't say I couldn't laugh, her great aunt said, wiping streaming tears from her face with her apron. How did it happen? We were playing in the leaves and a little wind twister appeared, healed her pounced and swallowed it. It's trying to get out of her, but she won't let it. Let me talk to your mother. Sybil, can you tell me which direction the wind is from? I think it's a north wind. It's very strong. Hulda spoke with her for several more minutes. Sybil listened intently. I think I understand, Hulda. I'll call you back after I try it. What is it, mother? What can we do? Sitting on the floor, Tess was holding Hilda against her lap, who was growling steadily. She won't let it go. Hulda said it's better not to let it go while she's inside. The wind will be pretty mad. Tess imagined what that could look like in the cheerful but organized kitchen full of dried herbs, shiny bottles, baskets, and potions. Her mother went to the garden shed in the backyard, returning with scissors and a basket with balls of thick garden twine in several colors. She swiftly cut three equal lengths of twine, knotting one end, rapidly braiding the colored twine into a thick braid. Black for the wind's bite, red for the wind's might, the north where you are from is white. Bite, might, white, bite, might, white, she chanted. I'm making a big loop with it. She tied a circle holding it open wide. Now pass Hildur through the loop. As wide-eyed Tess obeyed, Sybil immediately closed the circle, pulling the braided ends until the first knot in the braided cord appeared. She tied another loop. Do it again, Tess. As Tess passed Hildur through the second time, Sybil drew the circle closed into a second knot. Hildur's agitating rocking began to subside. Once more. That's it, said Sybil. Hildur was passed through the third loop, and the ends were drawn closed into the third knot. Hildur relaxed so suddenly she went entirely limp. Where's the wind? Tessa asked. It's still in her, but bound. What do we do now? 
We wait. Hulda said to put Hildur in her carry crate and let her rest. We keep the cord with her or the wind will struggle in fear. It must be so frightened, said tender-hearted Tess. Yes, or mad, or both. The afternoon wore on. In the crate, with the braided cord binding the wind, Hildur could open her mouth and was able to drink a little and whine occasionally. She kept herself coiled in a ball with a bit of a wild look in her eye. Is she going to be okay? Tess asked her mother. What do you think is taking Hulda so long? Hulda does things right, Tess. She'll come up with a way for this to resolve without Hilda getting hurt or our kitchen destroyed. We want it to be the right action or we could face consequences from the wind for some time to come. I hadn't thought about that, Tess said. I'm so sorry. How could you know she'd do something like that? It's not your fault. It's not hers, really, just a cat's nature to pounce, if we could convince the wind to see it that way. It was just a small wind. It won't be forever. Tess and Sybil looked at each other. Hulda carried a basket of goodies, including a cake, some red apples, and a small jar of mead out into her back garden. She went beyond the neat kitchen garden through the medicinal herbs and into the far back where she approached a simple labyrinth laid out with stones from the beach, the mountaintop, the riverbed dug from deep in the garden, and a few lava rocks. She sang as she walked slowly into the labyrinth heading towards its center. She sang to the old ladies of the north, three wise beings. She sang about the girl Tess, a goblin cat transmogrified to look like a normal cat, named for an elven queen but with powers unlike a normal cat, and its capture of the little north wind. She sang about the knots holding the wind in check and how all of them, she, Sybil and Tess, wanted to be able to release the wind with no hard feelings. She sang for a while. Several winds came in answer to her song, pulling at her corona of braids on her head and gusting around her. Standing in the center of the labyrinth, she acknowledged the winds and asked them to send help. One wind pushed her a little, and she stood her ground to it, singing calmly that it was an accident they could all learn from. The wind pulled back, joined the others, circled around her, and then all of them went flying off to the north. Hulda wrapped her shawl more tightly around her, standing peacefully and thankfully, and made her way out of the labyrinth with an empty basket. Sybil got off the phone and said to Tess, who was waiting a little impatiently to hear what Hulda's advice was, We wait now. Hulda sent a message to the north. Keep your eyes and ears open and the moment will come when you'll know exactly what to do. Me? Her mother nodded. Oh, how long do you think we have to wait? As long as it takes, said her mother. That's what she always says, Tess thought glumly. I know, just be ready. After a quiet dinner, Sybil suggested that Tess take Hilda and the wind to get a little sleep. She said she'd wait to hear from Holden, but let Tess know as soon as she heard anything. Tess talked quietly to Hilda, letting her know everything would be all right. Hilda whined piteously. Eventually, Hilda called and let Sybil know what would likely be happening. There'll be a price, Hilda said flatly. I understand. Sybil thanked her and sat silently for a few moments before squaring her shoulders resolutely. 
She thought about the best way to proceed and set about making plans. She looked in on Tess and Hildur and left them sleeping, thinking it was likely to be a long night and rest was the perfect way to prepare. Sybil made a big pile of coats, mittens, hats, and shawls and put a thermos of hot chocolate and some shortbread in a cloth bag and began her wait. The winds began to pick up. As the evening hours went by, the winds became stronger until there was a howling noise around the corner of the house. She noticed that the winds were shifting around, coming from more than one direction. She could feel her heart beginning to hammer a little as window shutters banged against the house, shutters that had been secured but were loose nonetheless. Mother, she heard Tess call. Has Hulda called? She has. She said to be ready tonight. Put on your warmest clothes. Tess hurried to comply, tucking an extra warm shawl into the cat carrier for Hildur. Come down here when you're ready. Bring Hildur with you. They didn't have long to wait in the warm kitchen by the wood stove. On the stroke of midnight, the French doors at the back of the kitchen blew open. Wind and leaves blew in, and an irritable-sounding deep mill voice cried out, Where is it? Where's my wind? Sybil thrust a pile of coats and hats at Tess, saying quickly, put these on. Her coat was already on, her cloth bag over her shoulder, and a steely look was in her eye. She went out of the doors to confront the voice. Tess, carrying Hildur in her case, braided cord included, was right behind. A very strange scene met their eyes. An eight-legged horse pawing its front four legs while hovering in the air was held in place by a stern-looking, one-eyed man dressed in a cloak with furs, holding a spear and wearing a spiky-looking metal crown. He eyed them irritably. Have you got it? Have you got my wind? Sybil stiffened her back and replied equally imperiously. We do have your wind, all father. Well, give it here. Give me the cat. He reached toward them while pulling a big knife out of a sheath strapped to the saddle. We're late as it is, he gestured behind him. Women on horseback, warriors on giant wolves. A pack of huge hounds and even stranger folk were ranged behind him. There was a sense of urgency, of excitement. The winds howled louder and clouds scudded across a moon that was looking red and ominous. Moonlight and some other spectral light glinted on the brandished blade. We ride with you, all father. You ride for death. We ride for life. Touch not the cat. Sybil stared defiantly at the one-eyed god. Touch not the cat, cried Tess, echoing her mother with the cat carrier held behind her. A wild-haired woman pulled forward, driving a cart drawn by two immense cats. Her eyes laughed at the mortals while her voice said calmly, I claim them, Odin, and the cat. He turned and eyed her with disfavor. You would do, wouldn't you? There will be a price. They've slowed down my hunt, stolen my wind's favorite child. Come, said the woman to Sybil. Come, child, bring the cat. I know what to do. Of course there'll be a price. I look forward to negotiating that with you. As Tess and Sybil passed warily by the cranky god on their way to the cart, he said, wait. They halted as he touched his finger to their throats. A Triskelion flamed eerie blue light on the soft skins of their necks. So you don't forget, Freya. You too, cat. The interior of the cat carrier flamed blue while both the cat and the little north wind howled with fury. Odin laughed shortly, turned his horse, and spurred it into the sky. 
We ride, he bellowed. Hold tight and ride for life, said Freya, flicking the reins of the cart. Sybil and Tess eyed each other. For life or our lives, asked Tess. Both, laughed the lady. As the wild hunt flew into the sky, sometimes swooping down towards the earth, sometimes flying higher, some of the riders called out, bring out your dead. The shades of people, of animals, plants, and others all were lifted, teased out, and scooped up as the mounted riders gathered up as many as they could carry. A being, icy and majestic, approached the flying cart. It was massive and coldly angry. Where's my son? came a voice that carried with it an arctic chill. Deep and hooded eyes looked out from a maelstrom of clouds and wind. We have him here, said the wild-haired lady calmly. Hold these reins, Sybil dear. Tess, pull out the cat and the cord. The wind lunged towards the cat. Tess held on as the wind tried to wrest the cat from her grip. Temper, temper, he's safe. Lady Freya untied the first knot. Black, red, white. She untied the second knot. Bite, might, white. Unbind, unwind, be kind. She untied the third knot as a little wind revived inside the cat and struggled for freedom. The north wind tried to pull the cat away from Tess. She held on with all her will and power. So did Hilda, refusing to let the little wind go. The parent wind raged furiously. Odin, appearing alongside, reached across the cart and poked Hildur in the stomach with a long, strong, bony finger and said, Give me my wind. Hildur refused, grinding her teeth against the onslaught from within. Hawk it up, cat, he poked her again. Hildur heaved convulsively and the wind expelled from her, ejecting out into the sky, immediately surrounded and borne off by its parent. Stubborn cat, said the one-eyed god with just a tinge of admiration. I may have a use for you yet. He rode off as the newly renewed winds blew ever more fiercely. Freya smiled to herself and tossed Sybil a bag of what appeared to be glittering dust. If we ride for life, we better get busy. The two of you start scattering this dust as we fly. We reap and we sow. We reap and we sow. That was the clearest thing Tess remembered, until the fervor of the hunt began to die down. She would never forget the images of the wild hunt, the passionate flight of the strange beings, nor the feeling of death passing through a veil, and life being sown anew. Her next clear memory was of her mother, like Hulda, equal to anything, pulling out her bag and offering Freya hot chocolate and homemade shortbread. As they sipped and munched together, the one-eyed god came by again on his glowing horse. Freya tossed him a biscuit and said, I know, I know, there'll be a reckoning. I look forward to it. To Tess and Sybil, she said, don't worry, I have him well in hand. Odin and his warriors flew off, the wild hunt dispersing while the vaguely swan-looking lady riders accompanied Freya as she returned them to their home a bit before dawn's first light. She kissed them both and patted the grumpy-looking cat on the head, tipping her head up to see the Triskelion branded on the cat's neck. After letting them off on the back porch, she saluted them gaily. I'll be seeing you, and launched into the sky into the first light of dawn. 
I want to have cocoa and biscuits with Odin and Freya. <laughs> then you should. <laughs> I want to ride for life. <laughs> I want to ride for life as death passes by. That was fabulous, Betsy. That was really so many beautiful layers. And even though it was happening in present time, or felt like present time. It was an ancient story made anew with old powers integrated into a really practical solution to possibly a big problem, very big problem. And I, I like the getting to know Sybil a bit more too, Tessa's mother. I love that whole family so much. I love how different they are and how many different aspects they bring and their gifts the different gifts they carry. I love how sweet Tess is and how often that gets her into trouble because she's so innocent, but also saves her in the same way. Right, right. What was it like for you to be with them? I know you've been with them before, but in this story with Freya. Well, to be honest, I had the glimpse of Hildur, the goblin cat, swallowing the wind weeks before it came time to do the wild hunt. So I knew that was coming up, but I didn't know how it was going to be involved. So once I started writing this and the rest of the story came through, it was fun to get to know Hulda a bit more and her type of magic, if you will, but also to be on the hunt with them, as you said, with Odin and Freya. And I'm just curious to see what happens with those brands on their neck too the sacred markings me too and i do look forward to seeing freya managing odin a bit more as well yes Uh, that will be its own story or possibly many stories (laughs) (laughs) that would unfold from that i love the concept and the energy of the ally and that there will always be someone who comes for us if we ask for help and if we're willing to unravel or undo, not a wrong necessarily, but a situation that we're in, calling on the right people at the right time and standing with them. And I love the matched energetics of Freya to the family and how she's sort of taken them as her own in this way, possibly because they have been her own already. But in that moment, there's such a seal of recognition. I love that. I was also, for myself, struck by something simple as a cat (laughs) swallowing a wind, but to also realize that when it comes to those uncanny things in nature, the simplest thing can turn into a situation where there are obligations or prices to be paid yeah absolutely and the acceptance of that I think I developed appreciation for Tessa's mother for Sybil I didn't even know what her name was till this story but she would do what she had to do on behalf of her child and face it all straight up I love the fact that she didn't take over and incorporated or had included Tess in the unwinding of it and saw it as an initiation for her daughter, a very important one. I also love the boldness of everyone involved. 
like everyone was just willing to show up and be themselves and uh, argue for what they felt was right. What a lovely world it would be if that were true. <laughs> I don't know. Certainly a, a world to aspire to be in and to see ourselves in. Yeah. The only way to create that world would be to do it. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I love how with the wild hunt being one of those occurrences or one of those, I do look at the wild hunt as connected to nature in a big way and just the natural laws and how sometimes we simply step into something like that unknowingly. But when we realize what it is, or even if we're not hundred percent sure what it is, but when we get a sense of the urgency of that time of the moment and of all the players in it, how our participation in it will change us mm -hmm. and how we will change that occurrence in itself by showing up authentically. And I think that we can be respected if we end up in a situation like that and really show up. I, for myself, also found it interesting, the contrast of the roles that Odin and Freya played too. And it felt so strongly that Odin had, I mean, he was a god of winds, I think, you know, in some of the early iterations. And so his connection to the wind felt very powerful in this. But also it felt as though as the leader of the wild hunt, everything is kind of running through him and he's holding all of that. And that situation, you know, it's like just that, pulling out the knife ready to cut the wind out of the cat just for expedience sake. But that sense of he's so involved and with Freya not in that place, she had more maneuverability than he did in a certain kind of way too. And because of that could intervene perhaps calmly <laughs> and gaily. Right. Yes. Often the calm person has a lot more ability in a moment. Yeah, I think that's so true, isn't uh, it? Mm -hmm. But it is important for the person who's holding back or about to release the massive energies that have been building for a cycle or for a time. Their role is to release the binds, release the winds, and, and that nothing can be in their path. But that's the energy of the wild hunt. Right. So they cannot be calm. It's not possible. <laughs> and in that role, cannot be calm. He is the wind. He's the rider. And no one can be left behind. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's beautiful. I love how it all came together. Yeah, it was fantastic and beautiful story. Thank you. It was fun. It was fun to be with it. Yeah, I feel like I've gotten a lot of out of this week. Lots of insight into how to release things and show up in a better way which I think is exactly what I'm working on. So perfect. Yeah, for me, I, I'm in a place where I really have a lot of love for the unwanted, for the castaway. I always have that, the moments with those, those beings, simply because I want to believe that everybody finds their way. And I do believe that. And I have a lot of appreciations for the energies that show up for them, that can liberate them fully and support them and everything in between just the balance of cycles and time and places yeah i love what both of you have 
just said. And I think as well, for me, I think I have appreciation for the wild hunt and other forces of nature like that for what they offer us. And I think as we know about them, as we learn about things like that, we can work with those forces of nature and help to empower them. And it strikes me that, especially in this kind of stressful time that globally we've been experiencing as humans, there are all kinds of leftover emotions and energies and people being drawn into good versions of themselves, less than good versions of themselves, and a kind of a toxic debris of energy that could just linger around unless winds and forces like the wild hunt came, not just for the dead, but for the, for the old things that are over, for in some ways even the way that life was before pandemic. It's not the same anymore. And if we don't cling to it, if we let go, and see what gets sown now, you know, with that glittering dust that comes for those who ride for life, what's possible now after the clearing away of what's over and dead and needs to move? I'll be thinking about that. And one of my favorite things to do this time of year is to write what I want to release on dried leaves and put them out for the winds to take and really put thought to it. So I encourage anyone who has any leaves around them at this time to do that and know that the winds are our friends in those ways. I love that. I totally want to do that. I love that too. Thank you for that. Thank you both so much for this evening of story. Really, really loved it. Mm -hmm. Profound words of wisdom. Thank you. And beautiful imagery. I really think both of you are such wonderful storytellers. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for listening. And special thanks to the fantastic Zoe Magic for her phenomenal editing skills.